today we're in Acts 27. Uh, it's quite a long um, chapter, well, it's quite a long reading, so um, I'm going to start on that. Um, so we've got the ESV version, if, uh, if you're new, we're using the ESV version, Acts chapter 27. Uh, Paul sails for Rome. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the, uh, of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of the, how do you pronounce this, uh, Adramitium, uh, which, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonia from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty of uh, Nidus, I think. And as the wind uh, did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Sal Salmoni. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Coasting along it was, uh, with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens. That's easy to pronounce. Near, near which, uh, which was the Sea of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because of the fast, uh, because even the fast was already over. That means it's late October. Uh, Paul advised them, say, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of, the, of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than what Paul said. And because, of the, uh, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter there, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the sh uh, ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running along the lee of a small uh, island called Cordia, uh, Cordia, Corda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. And hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would be running around on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next uh, day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they drew, uh, threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. 
Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run uh, on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, and had lowered the ship's boat under the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, Unless these men stay, with the ship, or stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the uh, ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing, Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not, not a hair is to, be, uh, to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off at the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the uh, foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck, uh, The bow struck and remained un- immovable and the, stone was being, uh, the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurions, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the, of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safety, safely to land. Let me pray as we go on. Lord, thank you for giving us this uh, amazingly detailed passage, uh, this record of Luke's, of Paul's uh, journey through this storm. Uh, Lord, thank you for saving not just Paul and his friends, but uh, all of those on board. Lord, we pray that as as we come to this this passage, you open it up to us so that we can see uh, what you are teaching um, about yourself to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's an amazingly detailed passage, isn't it? Um, there's uh, a lot of detail in there, and actually historians say that it is uh, the uh, most detailed and best-kept record uh, of a storm in the first century. But we'll come back to that in a, in a little while. Um, in 2009... Uh, there was a sci-fi um, series, high 
Hollywood budget series called Flash Forward. I, this is where I, my interest, my geekiness comes in. Um, in it, at the very start, everyone in the world falls unconscious for about two minutes. And what they see is a vision of what will happen to them in a year's time. Now, what follows on is how people react to that. Some people see nothing, and they realize that they're going to die. They fall into a depression. Uh, some of them fall into depression. Some of them, instead, live their whole lives uh, really hedonistically, trying to experience everything they can before they die. Some people hold death parties. Some people see what they're going to do in a year's time, and again, they just carry on their lives just as they were before. Some of them embrace life, knowing that they are invincible, or thinking they're invincible now, because they know they're going to live in a year's time. So my question is, what would you do if you knew what was going to happen to you in a year's time? How would you react in that situation? If you thought you were going to die in a year's time, would you fall into a depression? Would you, uh, would you blame God? Would you try and live every moment as if it was your last? Would you go out and do all the things you wish you'd done? When I left London, uh, my friend uh, said to me, I'm really keen to, to do your London bucket list. And I hadn't really thought about that before. So uh, all the things that you, you, know, you do before, I wasn't going to die, all the things that you're going to do before you leave London. Um, and actually, I did quite a few, a few of those, and it was quite fun. Um, but how are you going to react if you know what's going to happen in a year's time? Now, this is what's happening in the passage, isn't it? Paul has known for a while that he's going to go to Rome that he's destined to speak before Caesar. If you've got your Bibles open, just flick back to chapter 23. In verse 11, so chapter 3, verse 11, God says to Paul, just wait a second. Uh, if you find the passage, just look up and smile. Chapter 23, verse 11. So God says to Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Well, that's got to give him a great amount of peace. I have to say that if I heard this news, I'd be over the moon. It means that I'm invincible. You know, I could go and jump off a cliff. Um, apart from the fact that I'm scared of heights and I don't want to end up in Rome in a wheelchair. But, but I can go and do whatever I like and I know I'm going to go to Rome. So I'm not going to die. Uh, you know, uh, nothing bad's going to happen to me. Eventually I'm going to find myself in Rome and I'm going to talk to Caesar. Um, similarly, um, that's what we have here, isn't it? And you may be thinking, well, I don't really have God or an angel telling me that I'm going, to, I'm going to be okay. But as we live our Christian life, uh, God shows himself to us more and more. And the number of times that God has answered my prayers and shown himself to me and been there for me, I have no reason not to trust him. And this, again, is a, a passage about trusting God in the hope that he gives us 
and in the peace that we have from that hope. Like the last passage I spoke on, when Paul was being beaten in Jerusalem. Here he's going through a terrible storm, but he shows an incredible amount of peace. That's because he has this hope, and we can share in that hope. A few years ago, I know some, I've talked about this before. A few years ago, I was going through a, a particularly difficult time in, uh, in, in, uh, in school. Um, I was being persecuted uh, for being a Christian. Um, now, for me, that sound, it seemed as if the world was just you know, out of control, my life, my work. And I'm sure you, you must have experienced similar situations. And if not, I'm sure that these, you know, I hate to say it, but I think that these things do come to all of us, uh, where we feel as if everything is, is spinning out of control. And I would like to say that I had an incredible amount of peace and maturity, but I didn't. I, I even wrote on my Facebook page, you know, and I shouldn't really do this to share it with everyone, that I felt as if I was cast adrift on a sea of chaos. That's very melodramatic. Um, but I, I you know, felt as if the bottom had fallen out of my world. I did trust God because, uh, in the way that I threw myself at his mercy. I cried out. I prayed. Everything didn't uh, clear up straight away, but he did bring me through it. And hopefully now... Looking back on it, seeing that he, yeah, he brought me through that, I should know better. I hope that I know better for next time. It did give me strength. It does give me hope that if something like that happens again, I will be able to weather it. And this is what we're told. But people will say, well, I'm not you, Sam, uh, as if, as if uh, I'm something special or super spiritual or, or something. Um, really, I'm not. Um, and how do I trust God? Well, again, I would say this same back to you. How do you trust anyone? Well, you try and learn more about them. Well, we can read the Bible. We can talk to, to other Christians. Uh, we find out about their character. And we talk to people we trust. So you might talk to me, or you might talk to Craig, or other people in church, other Christians. So, for example, you, you might... When, when you meet your parents' friends, or when you're a child, you, you know your parents' friends. Well, they're trustworthy. My parents wouldn't let them out in the house if they weren't trustworthy. Or your friends' friends. Okay, so we find out more about them. And we trust them by giving them little things, little by little. We might tell them something about ourselves. That's a leap of faith, isn't it? By trusting somebody, we're giving a bit of ourselves. And we learn to trust them more and more. And I would say the same about God. I've learned to trust him more and more until the big things. I've cast myself on him, and he's come through for me. But we're not promised that everything's going to be easy, are we? We're even told that there will be suffering, and there may be persecution coming. We're not told that our life is going to be easy. Anyone who tells you otherwise is lying because the Bible doesn't promise that to us. What it does promise us is that if we stand for God, then God will give us peace, but also God will fulfill his purpose through us. We're invincible until 
God fulfills his purpose through us. And that's an amazing thing. Now, that doesn't mean that purpose won't include suffering, persecution, mocking, alienation, imprisonment, or even death. But the Bible does say that God will fulfill his purposes through us. It promises that uh, it promises us that God is a faithful God and that he will fulfill his purposes. Look at Paul. He was, he was stoned and beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked. There is no instant calming of the storm here. He's not Jesus. There is, uh, there is no walking out of the prison, no angel to open up uh, the, the prison gates here. There is a purpose to, to Paul's journey. And actually, we don't know what the effect Paul's preaching had on these many prisoners. The centurion named Julius, or the soldiers, or the, the other sailors. We don't know their story, but we know that God had a purpose and a plan for them as well. But God's plan and purpose for Paul meant that God was going to bring him through this. And because of that, Paul had an incredible amount of peace. You see, if we don't believe that, then we really don't believe that we have a creator God, a God who listens to us, a God who takes part in our lives, in this life. And we have to re-examine our faith, really. This is a God who controls everything. And it should mean that we have an incredible amount of peace. It's kind of like those trust games, isn't it? Has anyone done them where you, you stand on a high place and the, all your friends or your colleagues, I know that some you know, people do these as team-building exercises in their workplaces that you go away to a retreat. They stand behind you having their arms out and you fall back into them. Yes, have you done that? It's quite a scary thing. You tell yourself, even if it's your friends, I've done it with my friends, even you tell yourself, I know, this is, my, this is my friend. He's strong enough to catch me, or they're strong enough to catch me. They've got their arms. There's no way they can... Actually, my friends don't trust me. I know that. Um, they're strong enough to catch me, but telling yourself that, you know, and actually believing that in your very body, in your very mind, is a whole different matter. So... Trusting God is the same thing. We tell ourselves, we come to believe more and more, and by experience, through suffering, and by having these experiences, we learn to trust him, and we gain that peace. God will catch you when you fall. Right, let's have a look at this, uh, this passage again. Let's have a look down. There are all these names in this passage, the places... And all of these details about the wind. And it's incredible that this piece of uh, literature here is not disputed by any historians or archaeologists or geographers or sailors. Not a single part of this passage is disputed. Now, Luke's Gospel, there are one or two other passages that are disputed by, by uh, but, but certainly not this very detailed passage. In fact, I know that there are people who are converted by just reading the Gospels and Acts and the rest of the Bible and realizing it's not flowery language, it's not fiction, it's not written as fiction, it's written very much as fact, it's just very, very simply written. 
Now, at the turn of the century, there was a man named uh, William Ramsey. He was a professor from Oxford and from various other places who became the foremost expert in history of Asia Minor and the study of the New Testament. He was also a, an archaeologist and by his own admission was a skeptic who went out to prove that the accounts of Luke, both his gospel and uh, the, the book of Acts, were wildly inaccurate. In fact, he devoted his life to the study of it. And near the end of his life, in his book, he concluded this in his book. This is what he wrote. Further studied showed that the book, that's Acts, could bear the most minute scrutiny as an author for the facts of the Aegean world, and that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. Isn't that an incredible statement by what is still considered to be one of the foremost people of history in this uh, you know, uh, and uh, archaeology in this area of the world at this time? In the same book, Ramsey uh, writes, I set, out to look for the, uh, I set out to look for truth on the borderlands where Greece and Asia meet and found it there. That means in Acts. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. And this is still the testimony of historians today. That's got to bear some weight into what we, how we look at the Bible. I saw an interesting survey. They, did a, uh, they didn't mention which uh, university, but they did a survey of uh, the archaeologists and the theologians uh, in, uh, in a university in America. And they found that the you know, vast majority of archaeologists believe that the Bible was a true historical document. The reverse was true for the, the theologians. And that's quite sad, isn't it? That's quite, quite worrying but it should give us some more faith. And again, trust that this is God's word. Here we have an, a detailed account of a difficult journey uh, and a terrible storm, something that any author might be forgiven uh, for, for, for exaggerating. I mean, if you've gone through, I mean, I, I tell stories about some harrowing incidents that I've had when I've been camping, when I've had some students with me. I'll tell you about them sometime. Uh, but I like to, to kind of tell it as a, a bit of a story. But there's none of that as you read through here. It's very much very factual. Luke is there, actually. You can see from, from the verse first, he says, we. And the historians have noted that Luke uses very different language when he's there with Paul and when he's not and when he's relating some, something somebody else has said. There is no hyperbole, no exaggeration, no flowery language. This is God's word. And this is another one of the key reasons why I have come to trust God's word as infallible. And that doesn't mean that there's still passages that I find difficult. But God's word is infallible. That's what I believe. As God, and it's God's primary tool for revealing his will and his character to us. So, my points so far have been this. If we live for God's purpose, we have nothing to fear. But instead, we should have amazing peace that God's will, uh, God will protect us until his work is done.
Secondly, God's word is trustworthy, and even the manner in which it is written testifies to the character of God. Now, my final point is this. God saves. He is a saving God. Let's look down at this passage again. Have a look at verse 18. I'm going to read from verse 18. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Note the word saved. Luke uses that word very specifically. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Shift down to verse uh, 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape the ship and had lured the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying anchor on the boat, uh, anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurions, uh, centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the, ship, uh, in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the sailor cut, uh, soldiers cut away the ropes and the, boats, uh, the ship's boat and let it go. There it is again. Paul is telling about salvation and they believe him. Finally, from verse 42. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump aboard first, overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. That word safely is they were saved onto the land. It's translated, they were saved to the land. Now, again, we don't know the story of these sailors or the soldiers or these other prisoners. But God has a purpose and a plan, and he saved these people. God is a, our God is a God who intervenes in this life. It's not the God that Descartes came up with that just created this wonderful world and just set it go, going. God is a God who answers prayers and intervenes in this life. We can have no doubt that Paul was praying for these people on the ship. And so when the angel appeared to them and said, there is not a hair on their, their heads that is not going to be saved, Paul could trust him. God is God who saves. These, we don't know what these people went on to do. But we know that the Roman Empire eventually became a Christian empire. We know that Christianity spread through, firstly, it's, there's still a church in Malta. In fact, there's a, there's a bay called St. Paul's Bay. But there is a very, very strong church in Malta. We know that the church in Europe at this time grew like wildfire. We don't know how many of these prisoners became Christians or spread the gospel. We see, we'll see in next, uh, the next passage that Paul on Malta has amazing opportunities to, to share the, his faith. And so it is the character of God to love the lost, to care about the lost, to save people. 
And if we're working for God's purposes, that's the purpose that we're working for, to love the lost and to save them through Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us to trust in your plan. Lord, as we read the Bible and realize that it is truth, that we talk to our Christian friends and are encouraged and realize that you are very much with us, that you are a caring God who takes part in our lives. Lord, help us to trust you. And Lord, help us to love others like you loved and that you still love. Give us a heart for the lost and pray that others might be saved through our testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.